And thank you, Carolyn. If you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open up to the book of Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we're going to look at that. We'll take a brief glimpse at, one, at chapter 8. And I know last week, Pastor Aramal said, we're going to be in Philippians all summer. He is going to be in Philippians all summer. In fact, the rest of the year. So on Sundays when I have to be out, he's going to be walking us through the book of Philippians. So that's how the two are going to coincide. And then when we finish up um, Micah, we'll, we'll do something else. But several years ago, I, I grew up loving contemporary Christian music. And I used to, I, I was okay with hip hop. And then this, the most famous at the time, the most famous hip hop group of uh, Christian music, a group named DC Talk, decided to change their genre. They changed styles. And they, in, their, in the opening lines of their song, What If I Stumble, quoted a man by the name of Brennan Manning. He's an author. He's a former Franciscan priest. And Manning said this. DC Talk quoted them, quoted him. They said, he, he writes, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. You see, I think what, we, what Brennan Manning and DC Talk and, and I think Micah are really trying to help us understand today is that there is a watching world around us. And there are people who are observing our lives. And while we don't need to live our lives in front of them as to be judged by them, we have to understand that they are watching. And so today, as we return to our study of Micah, we're coming to the final of his three sermons. And, and, if you, and you might think, well, how do we know? There's seven chapters. How do you know that this is his third sermon? Well, if you look at the opening word of chapter 6, verse 1, it says, here. And most commentators assume that because there are three times he begins big sections with here, their assumption is these are three sermons that Micah talked about. Now, we actually get to hear here twice in this passage, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So this final sermon covers chapters 6 and 7, and, and today we're really only going to look at uh, a few verses of that. The first seven, we're going to touch on verse 8, um, and then we'll really consider verse 8 next week. But it's interesting. Did you guys realize that back in the 90s, courtroom dramas really began to become a thing? I mean, there was, sure, there was like the court thing for a while, but then when O.J. Simpson's big car chase and his big murder trial and all that, I mean, it, it consumed everything. And so we began to have a fascination with courtrooms. We wanted to see that. Can you try again? No. <laughs> and so what's interesting, I bring that up because it's interesting that Micah sort of sets this sermon up like a courtroom. And what he does is he helps us see that the jury are the, are the mountains, which they seem to represent the watching world, because obviously mountains can't hear. I mean, they hear, but they can't really respond. Mountains and all creation are observing. And so it seems like Micah's talking about the watching world around us. That is our jury. And then there's the plaintiff. There is God, and Micah is speaking on behalf of God. And then there's the defense, the defendant, which is God's people the people of Israel and Judah. 
And in some ways, this, this sermon, if you were to read both chapters, you would see things like opening arguments, which we're going to get to today. You'll see a little bit of a counter argument, which we'll also get to today. You'll see expectations, what the law requires, what is expected of the people. You'll see the judgment, the discipline, the, and then we'll actually get a chance to see a little bit of grace because we have a judge, ultimately, who is gracious and loving. And so in this section today, we're really only beginning to scratch the surface of the details of this case, and yet these opening salvos raise some interesting points for us as God's people in the 21st century. So if you want to follow along in your outline, this is where your notes begin. So first of all, we have to recognize that we have observers. We have people watching us. There are people observing our lives, and God calls the people of Israel to defend their case in front of creation. He calls them to speak out in front of this watching world. And then he also calls the mountains to hear God's indictment of his people. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 in the New Living Translation says, Listen, there's the beginning here, listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. Here, he, he has a case against his people, and he will bring charges against Israel. You see, in the courtroom of, of creation, God is responding to the complaints of his people with his own complaint. And in many ways, his, his indictment goes unspoken. It goes really with, with vague specificity, if, you, if, you, if I can say it that way. Because he's already talked. He's already told them, here are all the things you've done. For instance, we've learned about their wicked devising, how they've schemed and tried to do things that were against God's will. We've learned about their coveting, how they wanted something and they would grab it and they would take it and they would hurt other people because of that. We've learned about their thievery, their, the way that they would steal from others. We learned about the way that they would listen to false teachers, how they would want to tickle their ears. Oh, tell us good things. Don't tell us about judgment. We learned about their corrupt leaders, and we learned about their love of evil. And as God lays out this unspoken indictment, he does so in front of creation, in front of the mountains. And obviously, as I said, the mountains can't hear. The mountains in creation can't testify, but people can't. The watching world can see how God is acting, and they may not always understand it. They may not always perceive, because ultimately, I believe the Holy Spirit needs to open people's eyes for them to fully understand. And even as God calls the people to remember how he acted in the past, he also calls them to remember how the watching world looked at what happened and feared. And, you know, the Brennan Manning quote that I mentioned earlier referenced... It is itself a convicting statement. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny them with their lifestyle. When you were growing up, did you ever learn the song, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see? You know what? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. 
For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. And that song then proceeds to talk about various parts of our bodies, talking about our ears and our hearing, talking about our tongues and our speech, talking about our hands and our actions, talking about our feet and our destinations. It talked about our hearts and our confidence, where we're putting our trust. It talks about our minds and our thoughts. And, 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 and that song is specifically calling us, calling God's people to pay attention to the fact that God is watching, God is aware. But I think that Micah here is also trying to help us understand that the world around us, the mountains, the hills, creation is observing as well. So be careful, little eyes, what you see, for the world around is watching, looking to see if we are living out the faith that we believe. Now, we don't need to live in fear of other humans, but if we are honoring God with our ears, our tongues, our hands, our feet, our hearts, our minds, then the world will see that there is consistency between what we say and how we live. And Paul reminds us of something very similar in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. He says, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. For the people of Israel, there were inconsistencies. Their actions did not support their faith. And God's actions were met with contempt and corruption rather than obedience. And rather than leaving an empty contempt, God presents an illustration of what he had already done for them. He's calling them, and I think he's calling us, secondly, to remember what God has done. To remember what God has done. As he lays out this illustration, he does, he does so with a bit of an emotional plea. As, he, as twice in this little rant that he has, he says, oh, my people. He's calling out to them. There's this nearness like a, almost like a parent to a child. Have you ever had those moments when your, your kid's just not getting it? Oh, my son, oh, my daughter, will you please understand? Get it. So Micah chapter 6, verses 3 to 5 says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And I find it so interesting that, that God here presents a fourfold illustration. He's really helping them understand the four ways that in the Exodus, how God helped them. Now, this activity happened hundreds of years before Micah is writing. But he's calling them to remember. Remember when things were really bad. This is how I worked in your, in your midst. And so here are the four things that God tells him. He says, first of all, I rescued you. God rescued the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. They were slaves there. We see that in verse 4. And we can read about that in the beginning chapters of, of the book of Exodus as we learn about Israel being in Egypt and all that God did to take them out. They found themselves as slaves in a foreign land, and God rescued them from the 
hand of their oppressors. But secondly, God says, not only did I rescue you, I also redeemed you. He provided redemption. He didn't simply just steal them away. There was an exchange, which is really what what a redemption implies. There was an exchange. There was something given for something else. As God battled against the false deities of Egypt, he proved his, his supremacy. And then he redeemed Israel with, with the firstborn children of the people of Egypt. That was an expensive redemption. And in exchange for the firstborn of Israelite children, God called for the blood of a lamb as the redemption price. In fact, throughout Israel's history, the redeemed, the, the, the firstborn children were to be redeemed from the Lord with a sacrifice. God's word says that everything that opens the womb first is his. There was a redemption there, and God redeemed the people of Israel out of the hand of Egypt. But thirdly, God provided resources. He provided Moses and Miriam and and Aaron as a means of helping them. These siblings were given a special call or given a special role in the lives of the people of Israel to lead them, to guide them to the promised land, to intercede on their behalf. Time and time again, when you read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, you hear these times when Moses is interceding for the people of Israel. He's praying on their behalf. God, don't do this. Do this instead, please. They were not left, the people of Israel were not left to fend for themselves in the wilderness. Moses and Arian and Miriam were sent as God's representatives, as his resources. But fourthly, God reminds them that he is their refuge. He has been their refuge from enemies. In other words, he defended them. You know, in verse 5, Micah references several things that if we're not very familiar, we'll be like, what? I had to go back and reread these encounters. And what takes Micah just a couple of lines to say is multiple chapters in the book of Numbers. But essentially what happened was the people of Israel, as they were nearing the promised land, they'd been close to 40 years in the wilderness, and God had given them victory over all of their adversaries so far. And the king of, uh, king, king of Moab, Balak, was on a mountain. He was seeing this horde of people looking down over this vast crowd and saying, what am I going to do? They just destroyed my other enemies. Yay, me. But they're about to destroy me. What am I going to do? And so he sought to bribe this guy named Balaam and said, Balaam, I want you to curse these people. I hear you're a man of God, so please curse these people. And Balaam three times said, I, I can't curse them. I can only speak what God tells me to speak. And so God protected them. He was their refuge. He kept Balaam from from doing the very thing that Balak wanted them to do. And yet, you know what? Isn't it so much this way? The people of Israel still managed to mess up. Because even though God protected them, they were like, ooh, there's some, some cool people. Let's hang out with them. And they began to... In Scripture, it literally says they began to prostitute themselves with the people of Moab. They began to intermarry and they began to do false worship. God had protected them, and yet they totally put that back in God's face. And I wonder how many times are we a bit like that? Where God God does things and we still manage to move aside. We still manage to turn our back to him. 
But then Micah references two places. One is a place called Shittim, where God actually punished the people of Israel for that last action. And then on the other side of the River Jordan is this place called Gilgal, where God reestablished his covenant with the people of Israel. And at that time, he called them to set up something called an Ebenezer. Annabelle came in this morning and saw this pile of bricks on the communion table and thought, what, are you going to throw this at us? (laughs) No, I'm not. But these bricks represent something like what the people of Israel would have done. In fact, after they crossed the Jordan, they took 12 stones and set them up on the on. The, what is now the Israeli side on the west side of, of, of Palestine. And, and some, sometimes these are called Ebenezers, which means up to this point, God has helped me. We're going to sing that in a song. You know, we're going to, you, you may know the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. In second verse, it says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I am come. Now you understand. You probably did before because you guys are super intelligent. But it took me a while to grab it. Oh, he's defining the word in the song. All that to say, God called them to set up an Ebenezer, to set up this pillar as a means of reminding them that every time they passed by, they would be able to tell their children, hey, remember what God did to us, for us, here at Gilgal. Remember how he brought us through the wilderness. Remember how he caused the the flooding Jordan River to to dry up so that we could cross on dry ground. Remember how God went before us into the promised land and helped us defeat our enemies. Sometimes these things are called cairns. We used some of these in in uh, the Middle East last year when, or a year and a half ago when I got to go, and we would set up these little markers so that we would know how to get to where we were going to climb or how to, how to get, more importantly, how to get back to camp. They became kind of way markers. This is the way to go. Remember, don't go back to the way we were. Go the way we are called to go. And so God called them. He said, set up these things, set up this pillar as a reminder But I I was thinking about these four things, the rescue, the redemption, the resources, and the refuge, and how God has also done those those same four things in our lives, how God has done that for us. I mean, think about this. He has rescued us from the slavery of our sin. God, he, he rescued us from that and took us to the promised land of abundant and eternal life. Romans 6, 22 to 23 says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But secondly, God redeemed us God redeemed us from the guilt of our sin, and instead of using the blood of goats or donkeys or bulls, God used the blood of his own son. Talk about an expensive redemption, the the eternal God taking on human flesh and exchanging our lives for the life of his perfect, holy son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9, 11 to 12 says, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then through the greater, the more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus Christ in coming redeemed us from all that the first covenant couldn't accomplish for us. But thirdly, God provided us resources. It wasn't just people like Moses, Arian, and Miriam. God provided us his word as our guide. Psalm 119, 105 said, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But Scripture also revealed that he has given us men and women who have gone before us, showing us the wisdom and value of God's ways. In other words, he has gifted us each other. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 14 says, Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. And their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. And this will continue until we all come to such unity of our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we may be mature in the Lord, measuring to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown away by every wind of new teaching. We, won't be, we will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. And then elsewhere, Paul talked about other resources that Christ has given us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 4, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He then goes on to talk about how the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts of wisdom, of knowledge, of healing, of prophecy, of discernment, and of tongues. But think about this. Look around the room just for a moment. I know it's a little awkward, and it'd be cool if we were like in the round and you could automatically all look at each other. But think about this. God has, in, has gifted you with certain gifts and abilities that he's not given someone else. God has given someone else abilities that he's not given you. He's given spiritual gifts to someone else that you need. And so he's pulled us together as a congregation as a means of providing resources, as a means of providing help in our time of need, as a means of providing faith. I know that we all know each other in different capacities, but consider what you do know about the stories and spiritual journeys of those around this room. How in this crisis, God showed his faithfulness to that family. And in that time of suffering, God revealed himself as their ever-present help in time of need. How in this time of joy, God showed them that he was faithful to them. Imagine what a privilege and joy it would be to invite an older brother or sister over for a meal and just sit down and listen and learn. Tell me your story. In addition to being our rescue, our redemption, and providing resources, God is also our refuge. 
And often he does this in mysterious ways, ways that we might not see until we look back years, decades down the line. I mean, think about this. The people of Israel were in the valley down below, and Balak and Balaam were up on the mountain, and they were looking down. And I bet most of the people, there's a couple million people down there, they had no idea what Balaam, what Balak was contriving. And yet God shielded them. And I think in much the same way, God provides confident reassurance to us so that no matter what our circumstances, we can trust that he is still at work. In the midst of great pain, in the midst of great disappointment, in the, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of great joy. Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Even if everything falls apart, God is still our refuge. Governments may topple. Wars may happen. God is still our refuge. Laws may get passed. God is still our refuge. So in this global courtroom, God calls his people to remember what he has done. And in the next several verses, we get to see Israel's response, or at least Micah voicing the response of the Israelites. And his response And our observing that, I think, calls us to respond appropriately. Calls us to respond appropriately. When we carefully consider all that God has done as our rescue, our redeemer, our resource and refuge, how will we respond? What will we do when we come to the realization that, oh my, God has done this? Will we be defensive? Will we be defiant? Oh God, I don't need you. I got this. Will we look at him with contempt or will we be humble and submissive? Micah points out in verses 6 and 7 Israel's response, and it seems like they responded with insolence. And rather than responding with humility or gratitude or worship, they respond with religious defensiveness. And it's as though they are saying, how many bulls do you want, God? How much sacrifice can I give you? Is this enough? How much money? Here you go, God. I'll give it all. What will make you happy? I mean, listen to what he says. This is the message translation. So it sounds a little funny, a lot different than what Carolyn read earlier. But the message translation says, how can I stand up before God and show proper respect to the high God? Should I bring him an armload of offerings topped off with yearling calves? Would God be impressed with thousands of rams and buckets and barrels of olive oil? Would he be moved if I sacrificed my firstborn child, my precious baby, to cancel my sin? God, is that what would make you happy? They want religious answers to a relational problem. They're essentially saying, God, I don't don't necessarily want to live the way you want me to. I just want you to be happy with me and let me give you enough so that I can appease you. Let me go to church enough. Let me go to synagogue. Let me go to whatever 
so that you'll be, it's almost like they're putting God in a sort of box and they want to serve him with their external actions, but they don't want to be transformed from within. They don't want to be changed. God, I want to live my way. But how often are we like that? Do we take our relationship with God for granted? Maybe we even treat God with contempt, thinking that his ways are antiquated. Oh, God, you're so old-fashioned. That's like so last millennia, much less last year. How often do we show up to church hoping that God will overlook my judgmental attitude or my moral failings? God, I'm here. Can I get a little break? All the while overlooking the fact that God, God's people are called to respond with integrity. And we're going to look at this. We're going to park in this next verse next week. But Israel is called to respond not with religious legalism, but with relational justice and loving kindness and humility. Look at what verse 8 says. Know, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what the Lord requires of you. It's not the bulls. It's not the big offerings. It's certainly not your child sacrifice that you may think I need. No. Do what is right to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. See, the point of our religious activity on Sunday, that religious activity should make a difference in our lives Monday through Saturday. Is there something that happens? Are we the same today as we will be tomorrow around the water cooler or on that Zoom call or in our browsing? The world is watching. The world is observing. And sure, they have their impressions of what God is like, and some of their impressions are true, and some of their impressions are made up because we want a God as a society. We want a God who just makes us feel good. Often our world wants a God of love and not a God of justice, all the while defining love conditionally. Love is endorsing everything I want. God, you'll love me if you whatever. Our world wants a God of peace and not a God of suffering. Forgetting that it's in suffering that we learn and grow. Our world wants a God of kindness, of rainbows and unicorns, and not a God of judgment. But God is all of that. We sang it earlier, holy, holy, holy. God is so set apart, he's so different from us that we have nothing to say but, wow, you are holy. Because he is loving, he is just, he is peaceful, and he's willing to allow suffering. He is kind, and yet he is holy, which means there will be a judgment. And as God's people, we get to do our best to proclaim God that way with our mouths, but also to honor him with our lives. One of Micah's contemporaries, a guy by the name of Isaiah, called God's people this way. He said, 
In Isaiah 1, 16 to 17, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Will we repent of our legalism, our box checking? Okay, God, I did my devotions. Are you happy? I came to church. Are you happy? Ooh, here's a bonus. I came to Sunday school. Are you happy? I gave a little bit in the, in the offering box. Are you happy? Will we turn away from evil? Will we seek justice and correct oppression? Will we stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves? But I want to encourage you too, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, if you're just checking all this out, then let me encourage you to respond with inquiry. The people of of Israel responded with insolence. We are called to respond with integrity. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, then let me encourage you to respond with inquiry, seeking God, seeking to understand, recognizing that in your current state, you are a slave to sin. Just as the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, you are a slave to sin. Learn about what Jesus has done to free you from the bondage of your sin by offering his life as a perfect sacrifice to you. And then ask God for, for the grace, I'm sorry, ask God to grant you faith to believe. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And I want to encourage you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, if you're inquiring, if you're like, ah, I just need to understand more, it would be a pleasure to sit down with you this week and open the Word of God and help you understand, help you get answers to the questions that may be rattling through your brain. Because I assure you, God is for you. He is a God who loves you and did what we might think unthinkable to bring eternal and abundant life for you. So let me close with a couple thoughts. Beloved, there there is a watching world. And when they know, when the world around us knows that we are God's people, Will they see people that represent him well by his standards? Or will they see something else? The mountains and the nations around Israel saw a faithful God and a faithless people. I pray that our watchers will see Jesus in us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for the way that you call us, the way that you work in our lives, the way that you have been our rescue from sin, our redemption from the guilt and eternal punishment of that sin. Lord, you've not left us alone. You've given us resources. You've guided us by your word and how to live. And you've protected us from those things that would destroy us. So God, help us to walk in humility, in love and faithfulness before you. Help us to honor you with our lives, just as we seek to honor you with our lips when we come together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to invite the elders and
couple extra guys to, to come to the front while we, as, as you guys know, the, normally the first Sunday of the month, we will take time to celebrate.